Welcome to This is Type 1, real life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. I'm Colleen Mitchell, and I've had type 1 diabetes for 25 years. I'm a life coach, author, and speaker. I also work full time as a process analyst in the power industry. I'm passionate about type 1 diabetes education and showing others that this disease doesn't define me. I'm Jessie Tuggy, and I've had diabetes for nine years. I love hiking and painting. I'm looking forward to working as an engineer after I get my degree in college. My diagnosis has inspired me to take control of my life and my future, to learn everything I can about type 1 diabetes. Each week on the show, we'll talk about real life with type 1 diabetes, bring on cool people with connections to type 1, and above all, encourage you to understand that this disease doesn't have to hold you back. This isn't medical advice. This is life with type 1. Welcome to episode 74 of This is Type 1, real-life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. Today, we're telling the story of the discovery and first use of insulin, 99 years and one day later. Now, I'm up for the win this week, and I'm not exactly sure of the reason, but going on walks recently hasn't plummeted my blood sugar like it has in the past, so that's nice. Jesse, what is your fail? So my fail is that I definitely need to stop putting my insulin patches on my right thigh. And I don't really know the reason why, but it does not absorb insulin anymore because I had some cereal and yes, it's low car or it's high carb on Friday for my lunch. And I put pre-bolus, I put in for it. I knew it was going to screw up my blood sugars, but I didn't expect it to spike to 400, which for me, like my blood sugars plateau kind of like around 300 if I go high or if I eat something because you know it balances out but I was not expecting to see a 420 on my meter when I tested two hours later because I wasn't wearing my sensor so that was fun luckily I left my old patch on and I just like switched it over to the left thigh and thank goodness it dropped like 165 two and a half hours later so that was really weird, really unexpected, and I won't be putting my meal on my right thigh anymore, and I have no idea why it's doing this. <laughs> Scar tissue, maybe. That's what I'm thinking. That or like muscle discrepancy, maybe. I have no idea. Do you generally put it in the same spot or the same area on your thigh? Yeah, generally, but it's a pretty big muscle, so I always do tend to move it around like up and down. It's not just like within an inch circle. It's like an elongated oval up and down my thigh and hip. Maybe give it some some time to rest and maybe you can come back to it in a couple months and see if it works again. That's what I'm hoping for, but it'll be a lot of trial and error from this point. That's what all of diabetes is, is trial and error. (laughs) And you've got a hack for us this week. I do. So when drinking alcohol, make sure you pay close attention to your blood sugars over the next 24 hours. I had some scotch the other night. It was pretty tasty scotch, but I also ended up sleeping pretty restlessly. And I also noticed that my blood sugar was slightly lower the next day, kind of as the alcohol kept working its way out of my system. So just keep an eyeball on your blood sugars if you're drinking. And uh, especially if you're drinking just straight hard alcohol, because yeah, scotch was fun. I like scotch. Well, that sounds like fun. I'm not there yet. Oh, no, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) of a couple years. Yeah, Yeah, I got another couple of years. This episode is sponsored by Shape and Foster. Shape and Foster is a lifestyle development app pulling together six experts in mental health, life coaching, financial planning, yoga, nutrition, and fitness. It's really a one-stop shop for improving your life. 
The app is community-based, and as a member, you have access to all the experts right there. You can ask questions, share wins, and support the other community members who are on the same journey as you. Lifestyle development is about enhancing your quality of life by improving awareness, identity, and potential. Going through all the monthly lessons in this program means you're impacting your whole life in ways you probably can't imagine. Visit inspiredforward.com slash shape and foster for your free 14-day trial. You can find that link in the show notes. And now back to the story. So this episode today is being released on January 12th, 2021. 99 years and one day ago on January 11th, 1922, 14-year-old Leonard Thompson became the first person to receive an injection of insulin. Within 24 hours, his dangerously high blood sugars dropped by 27% down to near normal, but there were still some issues. They needed to further refine the insulin. A couple of weeks later, on January 23rd, 1922, they treated Leonard again. And this time, his blood sugar dropped by 77% and ketones vanished. Now, you have to keep in mind back then, they didn't have blood glucose meters, so they weren't able to tell what the exact MGDL was. They were only able to kind of tell percentages of glucose in the blood. It's very fascinating. Before that day, type 1 diabetes was a near-death experience. The only hope for diabetics was that perhaps we could extend our lives by a year or two if we underwent very strict diets with very little carbs. Though in some cases, the harsh diets themselves caused starvations. And it wasn't just a near-death experience. It was basically a death sentence for anybody who was diagnosed with it because it's not curable. No. And there is this one mom at diabetic camp when I first started going. And to get the point across, she told me that kids in other countries in like first world or second world countries, their families and their tribes pray that the child will have a quick death rather than having it be prolonged. So that's pretty terrifying to tell to a nine-year-old, but you know, it got the point across. Yeah, third world countries don't have the same access to the drugs we do, which is really sad. But the story of insulin starts in 1889, when two German scientists discovered that removing the pancreas from dogs led to symptoms of diabetes, with death not far behind. So all judgments of animal cruelty aside, this led to the idea that the pancreas is where what they call the pancreatic substances were produced. The research over the next 20 years narrowed the search to the islets of Langerhans, which is what they called the clusters of specialized cells in the pancreas. It wasn't until the turn of the century that Sir Edward Albert Sharpie Schaefer suggested that diabetics were missing just one chemical, insulin. It comes from the Latin word insula, which means island. In the fall of 1920, Frederick Banting was reading an article about the pancreas. He started thinking about the problem of the internal secretion and wrote down an idea for an experimental procedure to ligate or close off the pancreatic ducts to isolate the secretion. He took his idea to the University of Toronto for testing in the summer of 1921. There, he gained access to labs, some dogs, and a research assistant named Charles Best. Over those few summer weeks, they made incredible discoveries. Before this, nobody had attempted to extract the islets from a fully degenerated pancreas, but this is exactly what they did. Medical News Today wrote an excellent summary of the research, and I'll quote it here. Quote, The aim was to ligate a dog's pancreas until it broke down and started to produce the extract of islets. 
This extract would then be given to other dogs without pancreases to gauge its effects on diabetes. Progress was initially slow. Banting struggled with animal surgery, and some of the 10 ducks tied dogs died. Banting and Best had to resort to buying potentially black market dogs on the streets of Canada with Canadian dollars. On July 27th, they had finally prepared a dog with a successfully removed pancreas and a dog with tied pancreatic ducks. Ducks. Ducts. <laughs> ducts. Just the way it's pronounced sounds like ducks. Three days later, the researchers froze the degenerated pancreas, ground it into a paste and filtered it before warming it to room temperature and injecting five milliliters into the dog with no pancreas. Scientists took blood samples from the dog every 30 minutes and saw a temporary drop in blood sugar from 0.2% to 0.12%. The dog died the next morning due to an infection, but the scientists noted the first signs of anti-diabetic action from the extract, which they named Ilatin. While many of their experiments failed, resulting in deaths of the laboratory dogs, Banting and team saw regular enough drops in blood sugar levels as a result of their extraction that they were confident in an anti-diabetic properties of Ilatin, which would later become insulin. Banting and Bess then decided that instead of breaking down the pancreas gradually, they would use a hormone called secretin to overwork and exhaust the pancreas in the hope that this would reduce the toxic effects when, while still providing the insulin. The procedure to obtain secretin was difficult and impractical, but it demonstrated a safer way to extract insulin from the pancreas. They also faced the challenge of trying to collect an extract of pancreatic solution without destroying the active ingredient, the substance that creates the therapeutic effect in medicine, in this case, the insulin, end quote. By the fall of 1921, they kept a diabetic dog alive for 70 days using their extracts. The dog, Marjorie, only died when the extract ran out. Before this, diabetic dogs usually died within a week or two of symptoms onset. Because using dog pancreases would limit more widespread production of insulin, Banting and Best turned to use cow pancreases as the source material. It turned out that the cow insulin was remarkably more effective on dogs without pancreases than the insulin extracted from dog pancreases themselves, and because cows were more cost-effective and widely available. That was the way forward. Another scientist, Canadian biochemist James Bertram Collip, joined the research team to help purify the insulin. This is when they began human testing, and Leonard Thompson received the treatment that saved his life. After Leonard, they continued testing it with six other patients. Frederick Banting was Canada's first Nobel Prize nominee, and the Canadian dollar, $100 bill commemorates this with a bottle of insulin on it. On January 23, 1923, Banting, Best, and Collip were awarded the American patents for insulin, which they sold to the University of Toronto for a dollar each. Because the University of Toronto wasn't a pharmaceutical production facility, they brought in Eli Lilly and Company, who today produces Humalog, and they assisted with the production. Over time, they moved away from cow and then pig insulin because of allergic reactions in patients. Today, there are human insulins and analog insulins. Human insulins are the ones you can buy at Walmart for $25 to $100 a vial. Those are R, N, and NPH. These insulins can't be used in pumps. Analog insulins are the ones that most people use. Rapid, fast, and long-acting insulins like Novolog, Humalog, Fias, Blantis, Basalgar, Levamir, and you can go back and listen to episode six on the different types of insulin. 
sometimes it's hard to believe that insulin has only been around for less than 100 years. With how long civilization has known about diabetes, and this goes back to like ancient Egypt, the fact that it took until 100 years ago to find an effective treatment is crazy. We are truly living in the best time to be a type 1 diabetic. Do you have any final thoughts on this, Jesse? Oh, I just, okay, so I did a research project on the fact that they sold their patent to the universities for only a dollar each. They wanted it widely available, and they didn't want people to be spending literal hundreds of dollars on life-saving treatments. So I think that should be something that we keep in mind every time, you know, the price of insulin gets raised and what we we need to start finding a solution to this problem because this is infringing on people's ability to get medicine. I So I did some extra research. There was a news article like in 1923 about uh, how much it costs to produce a unit of insulin. Mm-hmm. And they were producing like 250,000 units of insulin for two cents a pop. So it was two cents per unit. That comes out to $20 a vial. In 1923 dollars. So adjusted for inflation, that's like $320 per vial back then. And if you look back at what Humalog cost in like the 90s when it was first released, it was like $20 a vial in 1995 dollars. So the procedures and the processes that have been refined over the last century have driven the cost way down. So even though it was $20 a vial back then and $20 in 1995, the inflation increased the cost or the inflation is made back then like more expensive than it is now, or it was in 1995. I don't understand why the pharmaceutical companies are like, jack up the price. It's all good. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. But it's it's not like fine. <laughs> pharmacy benefit managers are, have no idea that we need analog insulin because even though human insulin is cheaper, it's nowhere near as effective. No, and nowhere near as safe either. I mean, you never know there's a very large difference between analog and human. So if you have an allergic reaction or like some, maybe not allergic reaction, but it's not going to help your diabetes in any way. It's very regimented. You have to be very, very strict about when you eat, how much you eat. You have to be very exact with your, with your injections. Those are the things you can't put in your pump. And when we're so used to living off of a pump going, changing to that different lifestyle is shocking and it can kill people. Exactly. Anyways, after our little rant. So we've got a question for you guys this week. Did you know the history of insulin? What surprised you the most about research into this life-saving hormone? And let us know. Send us emails, write comments. We'd love to hear from you guys. Kind of feel sorry for those poor dogs. (laughs) That was the most surprising thing. I already knew about that, but it's still... I heard they even resorted to like going on the streets and like picking up dogs straight dogs yeah yeah just like oh there's a dog we don't know if somebody owns it but we're gonna take it and this is why we have like regulations now i know (laughs) thank gosh (laughs) so that is it for this episode of this is type one you can find the show notes at inspiredforward.com slash episode 74 it's the number 74 If you're interested in being a guest on the show, please fill out the form on our podcast page at thisistype1.com. Our music is by Joseph McDade. I have a free Facebook group where I coach people for free in the comments, and I go live on most Saturdays. You can join Life and Mindset Coaching by visiting the link in the show notes. I'm on all social media as at Inspired Forward. You can find me on DMP, which is Diabetes Management Platform, as at Colleen Mitchell with a space. 
Our email is Colleen at inspiredforward.com. And I'm on Instagram as at JJ underscore Crystal K-A-T. Please feel free to send me questions or comments you have about type 1 diabetes or about the show. If you do reach out via Instagram, please make sure you mention that you're a listener of the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to listen next week when we talk with Dania Al-Khatib about the rebellious side of living with diabetes. Remember, you control your diabetes. It doesn't control you. Hey, if you like what you're listening to on this podcast, you have to join us in the Half Dead Pancreas Club. It's my private community where you'll connect face-to-face with other people with type 1 diabetes, get personalized emotional support, and learn how to handle anything T1D throws at you. Join us over at inspiredforward.com community. I can't wait to see you there.